what is the mission of this church? What is the mission of this church? You know, if I asked you that question, I suspect we'd get a lot of different answers. Right? It's been a long time since we've talked about mission and vision, and if you've uh, just started attending Groton Bible Chapel, even with the last couple years, uh, you probably couldn't answer that question. So I thought it'd be an uh, important place for us to start this morning to kind of give us a refresher on what the mission and vision of Groton Bible Chapel is. Our mission statement is reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ to a needy world. And it's a statement that uh, is a mission statement that we've been operating around for a long time. We've developed that statement, each word being rooted in Scripture, and we've come back to it time and time again, reflecting the Lord Jesus Christ to a needy world. If you think about that statement as a sort of a foundation stone, and on top of that, we built this vision of three pillars by which we make decisions and how we filter our thinking and so on and so forth. And those three pillars are equip, enfold, and encourage. Equip and fold and encourage. If you think about that, mission statement is our foundation. These three pillars uh, are, are really the, the, the vision for how we go about doing that. So, for instance, equipping. In equipping, we want to be a church that is involved in equipping believers. This comes right out of Ephesians chapter 4 to do the work of ministry. In other words, it's not the job of pastors and elders and ministry leaders uh, on their own to do work of ministry. Our job is certainly to be doing the work of ministry, but to be equipping the body of believers to do ministry. So that the work of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, of serving the world, of all of that is happening on a multiplying exponential uh, 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 manner throughout, throughout the GBC community. So equipping, that's number one. And so you'll see that manifested, and we're a teaching church historically through uh, men's and women's Bible studies, uh, small groups, the teaching that goes on in our youth ministry, uh, the preaching from the pulpit, all that is geared toward equipping. And hopefully we do that in increasing measure uh, better and better as we grow as a church. Second area is enfolding. Enfolding. This is the idea that we enfold those who come to the church who don't know Christ yet with whatever manner of brokenness or hurt or even rebellion and sinfulness. However they come to the church, we enfold them that they might have the opportunity to hear the redemptive message of Jesus Christ. And this is something that when we talked about this as a, as a pillar of our vision, we had to sort of reset our thinking that people who don't know Jesus may come in the doors with a whole bunch of mess because they don't know Jesus. And, and by the way, let's be honest, those of us who don't, do know Jesus at times don't behave like it. And so we want to be a church that's enfolding. And that's, there's a challenge to that, and it's something we want to continue to remind ourselves. And so you'll see uh, opportunities for enfolding in certain Sundays, like Christmas and Easter, but also through uh, unique events that our women's and men's ministry put on. Youth ministry, for certain, is, a, is an enfolding ministry at a certain level, and, and on and on. And then that brings us to the 30. And this E was really one that was unique to this generation of leadership, and it is encourage. We want to be a church that is an encouraging presence in the town in which we have been planted and whose name we bear— and the larger community and region within which we serve as a church. But we also feel a call to be an encouraging presence to other churches in the greater Groton region who are preaching the gospel, and churches specifically who are smaller than GBC. In other words, we want to be the large church in the region that small churches see as a resource and a, and a source of encouragement, not as a, a competition or, or something like that. And that last E, encouraging the community, encouraging the larger body of Christ, are things that we have seen lived out in a whole, at a whole new level in 2020. 
the, the pandemic and the other circumstances of the last year gave us tremendous opportunity to invest in our community with both resources financially and, and time and the talents of our people. We were able to, to resource and help minority communities over the last year. We were able to invest and help and support small churches in a region. All the things that we dreamed of, but we didn't know how they'd flesh out happened over this, over this last year. Matter of fact, I've been meeting with a group of pastors for a while, uh, and they're all pastors of little churches in our area. And we've developed deep friendships, and we're talking more concretely about hosting here at GBC a Pastors of Small Churches conference to do exactly that, to resource and to encourage them. And you know, we finished this building in 2019, and at the conclusion of this building project, we also really concluded our, our five-year uh, strategic plan at that, at that point. They sort of coincided together. We had endeavored to uh, bring on some new staff. Uh, there were changes in the elder team, and the building project was kind of the big, uh, the big uh, focal point of our five-year plan. And that concluded with this building opening. 2020 was supposed to be the year where we cast new vision, right? Where was, how we do equipping, folding, encouraging uh, going forward? What does the next five-year plan look like? And then, like, like all of you, 2020 happened to us. Right? And so we had to change course for a little bit. So beginning this year, uh, as far back as January of 2021, we've uh, been endeavoring to and engage with some consulting partners in ministry, and we're looking at afresh GBC's leadership systems and structures, and really kind of dreaming ahead uh, to the degree to which we hope to have a new five-year strategic plan uh, by late fall that we would be presenting probably in the new year at this point. So we're excited about that. We're doing some real, uh, real work as we consider uh, what God would have us do next as a church. Now, as you consider mission and vision, some of you are probably in business or in the military, and when you talk about mission and vision, that really doesn't distinguish us as a church from any business or corporation. But the church is not an organization in so much as it is an organism. It is a family. And so it's important for us to ask, beyond mission and vision, while those are important, what is the heart of the one that we follow and that we worship? And that is Jesus Christ. What is the heart of Jesus? And so that's what we're going to get into a little bit this morning. In fact, the series that we're in right now is, is called uh, From the Heart of Jesus. As we look in, in the farewell discourse that we've been covering over the last couple weeks and this morning in John 17, and we get at the heart of Christ. Now, in his book, Gentle and Lowly, uh, which has uh, really just rocked my world over the last year, uh, author Dane Ortland, I know several of you have read it as well. He says there's really only one place where Jesus explicitly says, tells us what his heart is like. And it's in Matthew 11 when he says, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For my yoke is easy, my burden is light, for, and, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. Jesus describes his own heart as being gentle and lowly. But that's not the only place that we see the heart of Jesus. We see it certainly as he interacts with several people throughout the New Testament. And we hear the heart of Christ here in John 17 as he prays to his Father for himself, for his disciples, and ultimately, as we'll look at next week, even for you and for me. And so we are in John 17 this morning. And our big point today is that Jesus was glorified and sanctified that you would know God and live with joy. Jesus was glorified and sanctified. Now, I know those are kind of Christian-y words. We're going to define them as best we can. But he was glorified and sanctified that you would truly know God and then live with joy. 
That's where we're going this morning. John 17 was first called the high priestly prayer in the 16th century by a Lutheran uh, theologian named David Catreus. And it truly is, it's an intercessory prayer. It's very solemn, but yet it's filled with joy and hope. And so we're going to break it into three sections. We'll look at two sections today, and we'll look at the third section next week. So we're going to start with verses 1 through 8. And before we do that, I just want to look to the Lord in prayer. Will you pray with me? Our God and Father, we thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that you were obedient to the Father. We thank you, Father, for your willingness to send the Son for us. God, we thank you for giving Groton Bible Chapel a vision, a mission, and a purpose and a plan. Thank you for allowing us to fulfill that plan. Lord, we look to you for where to go next over this next year. God, we thank you for this text that we now transition, we open together this morning. Uh, Jesus, these are the red letters in our Bibles. They are the words that you spoke. And so we want to hear from you clearly this morning. God, we pray that you ha have a message for us by the power of your Holy Spirit and that we would be open-hearted to receive it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. John 17, we'll read verses 1 through 8, and uh, John begins, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you, since you gave him authority over all flesh, so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. I have revealed your name to the people you have given me from the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given is from you, because I have given them the words you gave me. They have received them and have known for certain that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. And Jesus begins these words by saying, Father, the hour has come. Father, the hour has come. This is contrasted, of course, with Jesus saying throughout the Gospels, beginning in John's Gospel in John chapter 2, at the, the uh, miracle of the changing of the water to wine, when Jesus' mother comes to him. And Jesus says, Mother, my hour has not yet come. As Jesus casts out demons, as he does miracles throughout the Gospels, again and again, he tells uh, those that are exercised and those that uh, experience miracles, don't tell anyone yet. My hour has not yet come. And yet here he prays to the Father, likely in the hearing of the disciples, Father, the hour has come. And he prays this prayer that is sort of a prayer of reciprocal glory. He says, Father, glorify your Son that I might glorify you. This is not new in John's Gospel. Jesus has talked about this before, but now he is praying it directly to the Father. Glorify me that I may glorify you. And he, he sort of lays out the ways in which he's been obedient to the Father to this point that brings him to the edge of his passion. All the things that he has fulfilled that God has given him to do that has brought glory to the Father. You can see them in this list. This is, I ripped this from uh, A.W. Pink's uh, commentary on this section. Uh, I won't speak to each one of these, but you can see that he catalogs seven things that Jesus says that he has fulfilled in obedience to the Father. But beyond this, Jesus is also intimating the cross to come very shortly. 
He intimates that the work that he's come to do is not just his earthly ministry up to this point, but the cross itself is how he will be glorified. And Jesus says so in such a way where, and we'll read the scripture in just a second, that the cross is as good as accomplished even though it hasn't happened yet. That is where Jesus is ultimately glorified that we would know God. So probably the most important verse in this passage is, is verse 3. At the end of verse 2, Jesus has said that he's given life to those that God has given him. And then he says this, this is eternal life, verse 3, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. What is the glory of Christ? It is to make known. It is the the, the whole um, theme of John's gospel is that the Son gives life to those that believe in his name. And so then he goes on in verse 4 and 5, he says, I've glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. The cross is as good as accomplished. Verse 5, now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had you before the world began. You see, Jesus looks ahead to being restored to the Father's right hand, to the glory that he had before he came as a baby born in a manger coming to live a sinless life, to go to the cross, to bear our sin. Jesus sees, where we see the cross as a place of shame, Jesus sees the cross as the means, as a pathway, as the conduit of obedience to the Father's will to return to his glory. And he can see beyond it. Hebrews kind of sums up these ideas in Hebrews 12, 2, says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, despising its shame, that he might sit down at the right hand of the Father. If you're interested in doing a little bit uh, more study on your own and and you're not familiar with the Scripture, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. You can read that later. Philippians 2, 1 through 8. Paul describes Jesus coming, born to go to the cross, and he talks about Jesus, depending on, on which scholar you read, either setting aside or not fully hanging on to his glory. What Jesus is talking about here is reassuming his full glory after the cross, after the resurrection, and being reunited with his Father. So what does it mean that Jesus is glorified that you might know God? It means that Jesus goes to the cross, that he uh, 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 pays for your sin debt in himself. The glory of the cross is that we are forgiven of everything we have ever done as we trust in him. Getting ahead of myself, though, we're going to get into that in a little bit, and it's, uh, it's just super exciting. Uh, as we continue here, Jesus begins to talk about his disciples, and he actually speaks of the disciples as, as, the, as though they are a gift from the Father to him. Listen to what he says. At the end of verse 6, he says, uh, uh, They were yours, and you gave them to me. The disciples are a gift of God to the Son. Jesus views them that way. Think about it this way. Today, if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are a gift of God to the Son. The Son didn't go to the cross completely out of obedience. It was the perfect marriage of obedience and love. Jesus goes to the cross out of love. You are a gift as a disciple of Jesus to the Lord. Uh, Leon Morris in his commentary talks about the theme that runs throughout John's gospel of Jesus being fully submitted to the Father such that everything comes from the Father, including the disciples that are given to him. He is the source of all things. 
And Jesus talks about his disciples here, and he, he makes the case, not that he's trying to convince the Father, but he's informing the Father, again, probably the disciples are listening here, that the, they are truly his. Not only have they been given him God, but they, they have uh, appropriated that. And in so doing, in these three things that Jesus talks about, we can discern three principles of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And we're in verse 8. What is the first thing he says? He says, they have received my message. They've received my, he said, I gave them my words. They have received them. A disciple of Jesus this morning is someone who has received the message of Christ through belief, through faith. And they have received my message. He says, secondly, they have known my divinity or my origin. They know the origin that, that, that you, I was sent from you. A disciple of Jesus is, is someone who knows the divinity of Christ, that by faith believes that he has, in fact, been sent from God. He's the son of God. It's the second mark of a disciple of Jesus. And then finally, he says that they have believed that I was sent. A disciple of Christ is someone who believes in the mission of Christ, the words of Christ, the deity of Christ, and the mission of Christ as we believe, or receive, believe, and know these things. In other words, we were made to know God. Listen to how J.I. Packer says this so succinctly. He says, what were we made for? To know God. What aim should we set for ourselves in life? To know God. What is the eternal life that Jesus gives? It is the knowledge of God. What is it that brings in life more joy, delight, and contentment than anything else? Knowledge of God. Now, I think many of us would probably agree with that, but it's also possible, if we're honest, to know lots of things about someone without truly knowing them. Even of God, right? We can know uh, things from his word, details about him, facts. We can recite verses without truly knowing him. There are many in this world today who know an awful lot about God, but they do not know him. You know, in the 1980s, when I was growing up, one of my childhood heroes was a baseball player named Gary Carter. And Gary Carter played the majority of his career for the Montreal Expos, but he ended his career playing for my beloved New York Mets. And uh, he was just a great, not only a great baseball player, he was a great person. And uh, pretty early on in my childhood, somewhere between 10 and 12, uh, I came to recognize that I had four things in common with Gary Carter that I thought were pretty cool. And so I wrote him a letter and told him about it. The first thing was, we had the same initials. Whoop-de-doo. Right? <laughs> Listen, I was like 10, Okay. The second thing is we had the, first, the same first name. We're both named Gary. Third thing, we had the same birth date. But the thing I was really excited about as a 10 or 12-year-old is that, that Gary Carter and I were both believers in Jesus. You see, Gary Carter lived in his baseball career a life that he, where he was known as an exuberant, joy-filled, outspoken believer in Jesus. Not in the way that like, puts people off, but a way that engages them. Now, he died a few years ago of brain cancer. It was really tragic. But even today, you'll hear uh, people who played with him talk about his faith, his joy, his smile, the way he carried himself, particularly on a New York Mets team that was known for being a little raucous, that he was a witness. And so I shared this with him in a letter, and he actually corresponded back with me and sent me these autographs shortly after uh, sending the letter out, which is, as you can imagine, I was so excited. Now here's the point. 
I could recite to you the statistics at the time off of the back of Gary Carter's baseball card. I could tell you things about his personal life and his faith and his witness. I even had a little bit of conversation with him via correspondence, and I had something that came from him that he gave me. Given all that, I still didn't know him. I knew a lot about him, but I didn't know him. And I think this speaks especially true, this, this illustrative point, for those who have been in and around the church, right? You've memorized some verses. You know a lot about Jesus. But do you know him? John says at the very beginning of his gospel, he says to those who received him, he gave the right to be children of God, to those who believed on his name. He gives us the right to be called children of God when we do those three things. We receive his message. We believe that he is the son of God. And we believe in his mission. What is his mission? That he would be glorified through the cross that you would know God. Verse 3, again, what is eternal life? That they would know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you this morning, do you know him or do you know about him? And no matter where you are this morning, if you're at home or if you've joined us in the room here today, don't let today get past you without just prostrating you before Jesus, opening your heart to him and saying, Jesus, I receive your message. What I know of it, I receive it. I believe by faith that you are the son of the living God. And I believe that your mission was to redeem me, to forgive me through your death on the cross. And then begin walking with him. Reach out to us. We would love to connect with you, get you plugged in, and help you understand more of what it means to learn from him and to walk with him. That's what it's all about. That's why we do what we do. Well, let's continue. Jesus now actually prays for his disciples. We're going to cover verses 9 through 19. He says this, Jesus says to the Father, I pray for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me because they are yours. Everything I have is yours and everything you have is mine. And I am glorified in them, that is the disciples. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by your name that you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you gave me. I guarded them, and not one of them was lost except the son of destruction, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. And Jesus is talking there of Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Now I am coming to you, and I speak these things in the world, so that they may have my joy completed in them. I have given them your word. The world hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I sanctify myself for them, so that they also may be sanctified by the truth. So Jesus begins this petition for his disciples. And in this section, he recounts a lot of what he'd spoken to the disciples about in John chapter 15. He recounts it and now prays it as a prayer again. We believe probably in their hearing. And Jesus, he prays again for those that have been given to him, and he distinguishes them from the world. He actually uses the phrase the world 18 times in this chapter, in this prayer, as a distinguisher from those that have been given to him, namely, in this case, the disciples. 
Now, it's not that Jesus doesn't love the world. The most famous verse in the Bible tells us, John 3, 16, that God loved the world. John 4, John 12, he reiterates his love for the world. But as the upper room discourse in this prayer is is exclusive time between Jesus and his disciples, he is focused on his own. And he's distinguishing them, we'll see why in just a moment, that they are unique and different and set apart from the world. So he prays for them. He actually says in verse 10, the end of verse 10, that I will be glorified in them. And I think that uh, a couple of scholars, and I would agree with them, talked about that this is kind of a prophetic statement. Why? Because the disciples to this point in all of the Gospels, as we read, for the most part, weren't doing a whole lot of glorifying of Jesus, right? They were doing a lot of uh, being confused, uh, saying dumb things, uh, uh, fighting over who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, not understanding what Jesus was saying. There were occasions, Peter, right, when he says, you are the son of the living God, you are the Christ, But by and large, the glorifying of Jesus that happens, happens after they see him risen from the dead. So it's likely that this is a prophetic statement of Jesus, of his grace, yet to be fully realized in the disciples. Aren't you glad, by the way, that Jesus can pray that prayer, and then we can apply that to us too? That where I am today, that as God works in my life, as the Holy Spirit works in my life, I will bring him glory at some point, if I'm not already. What an amazing, amazing thing. And then Jesus makes this statement. I I love the King James version of this because I think it just has such poetry to it. He says this, he says, all that is mine is thine. And then he says, and all that is thine is mine. And this is a profound statement, a Trinitarian statement of Jesus' deity. Think about it. First he says, everything that I have, all that I am, uh, the mission I came to do, my person, these disciples, everything that I am, Father, is yours. That's not very earth-shattering. But then he says, everything that you have is mine. He's saying essentially all of the power and majesty and, and holiness of God the Father that he himself possesses could only be stated by the one who is the incarnate son of the living God. And so he has the authority to go to the Father, to pray on behalf of his disciples. And again, I'll lean on A.W. Pink here. He says, Jesus prays for seven things. We're going to look at four of them this week. The other three appear in the text we're looking at next week. He says, first of all, verse 11, he prays for their uh, uh, preservation. That is, he says, Father, protect them by the name that I have been, that you have given me. Protect them, preserve them, care for them. Again, distinguished from the world, taken out from the world, protected and preserved. And then he prays for their jubilation. Jesus had talked about this earlier in the the final uh, farewell discourse. That their joy would be completed and fulfilled, that his joy rather would be completed and fulfilled in them and how they live. It's part of our big statement for this morning. That we would know God and live with joy. We're going to come back to that. He prays for their emancipation, not their removal from the world. In fact, he says explicitly, I pray not that you remove them from the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. There's an insular thing that Jesus is asking for, a protection, a preservation, and an emancipation from the evil one. That we would be separate in that regard as well. And then finally, he prays for their sanctification. Father, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And there's likely a play on words here because Jesus in John 14 said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
And I don't think it's a big stretch, and we'll, we'll look at, at uh, one of the final verses here to, to see why, but Jesus, as the Logos, the very Word of God, the truth of God, is the means by which the disciples are sanctified. You see, Jesus, we're going to come back to the, and we'll define the sanctification thing in a minute, but which the, the, the attribute that the, the disciples were to demonstrate as being his followers was joy. Jesus' people ought to be a joyful bunch. But we aren't always, are we? Listen to what A.W. Pink says about this. He says, a miserable Christian is therefore a self-contradiction. Ooh, one stings me at times. He goes on, he says, a joyless Christian is one who is out of communion with the Father. Pretty strong language there. Or uh, he says, other objects or issues have engaged his heart, and in consequence, he walks not in the light of his countenance. This is a pretty strong statement that a joyless Christian is out of fellowship, out of communion with the Father. I wonder this morning, how do you characterize yourself? Are you living and walking out your faith in Jesus in a way that is demonstrated by joy? Well, what's the answer? He goes on, he said, what is the remedy? Three things. To confess our sins to God, to put away everything that hinders our communion with him, And listen to this, a little wordy, but listen to what he says here. To make regular use of the means which he has graciously provided for the, and I love this phrase, the maintenance of our joy. So first he says, confess sin. Deal with sin before God. Jesus has already paid for your sin. Confess it to him. Then he says, put anything out of your life that's breaking your fellowship, your communion, your intimacy with God. In my life, I was sharing with the staff and the elders a few weeks back. My wife and I had been watching this show that was just filled with filth. It was, it was just kind of smut, and I, and I was convicted, you know, and, and it was like, you know, the characters were really well-developed and super engaging. The storyline, the narrative was really well-written, and, and so you sort of hang your justification on those things, right? But I was convicted in my spirit, this has got to go, and so my wife and I had a conversation, and we just stopped watching, and it's funny because the thing that we were wrestling with, well, we're not going to know what happens next which is part of the marketing, by the way. Got to be smart enough to know that. But what, what are you hanging on to that needs to be expelled from your life? Happens to pastors too. And then he says, employ the means of the maintenance of our joy of the Lord. Well, what do you mean by that? He says, he defines it in the next sentence. He says, the word, prayer, Daily occupation with the heart of Christ. What we're even considering here today about Jesus. Dwelling constantly on the glorious future that awaits us. We don't talk about this enough. About what is yet to come. And finally, proclaiming to others the unsearchable riches of Christ. What what A.W. Pink is talking about are the spiritual disciplines. Being the word, prayer, fellowship, sharing our faith, being excited about heaven to come. These are the things that provide the maintenance of our joy in the Lord. I was talking with someone a couple weeks ago, we were sort of agreeing that, you know, the spiritual disciplines aren't disciplines when you're on the mountaintop, right? They're not very much of a discipline when you're excited about what God's doing in your life, where you can see him moving in your own life and circumstances, when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. Then you're reading the Word and you're praying. You can't wait to get in the Word because you know you're going to hear from him. No, the spiritual disciplines we engage when we're in the pit or in a valley, when we're not feeling the presence of God, we're not sure what he's doing, when there's uncertainty in our lives, that's when we engage, and it's probably even more important, 
that we stay engaged in those disciplines for the maintenance, the maintenance of our joy, as it were. Jesus is both glorified and sanctified that we would know God and that we would live with joy. Paul exhorts us in Philippians, rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. I wonder this morning, do you have the joy of the Lord in your life? Are you living with the joy of Christ or have the cares, the concerns, the issues of life sort of invaded like thorns that Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, choking out all sense of joy from you? And you know, some of you will say, these were my excuses. You'll say, well, wait a minute. I mean, come on, 2020 into 21. I mean, this pandemic, you don't understand the, what the isolation did to me, the stress, the anxiety, re- kind of reengaging my addictive behaviors. Like, you don't understand what it's done to my marriage. No, I don't. Or you, maybe it's the politics stuff for you, no matter where you're at on the spectrum. Listen, the pressures, the political pressures, the stress and the uncertainty, the tensions and the division, you don't understand the weight that that's put on me. And, and it's a different time. It's unprecedented. I think that we are quick to make excuses for why we are filled with a lack of joy. I want to read you a quote from Scottish theologian John Knox. Listen to what he says. He says, The church's true life is lived on a higher plane than the turbulent political stage in which we are so involved and with which we can become so thoroughly disillusioned. Does that not describe our time? What if I told you that this quote was written in the 16th century? that John Knox said this. In other words, he's saying that we have to rise above the circumstances of our time, that we are different. Jesus says 18 times the world in differentiating us from the world. We are to live differently, and to some degree, we need to remind each other, get over it. It is a turbulent time, but guess what, folks? That's not going to change. The particular issues might change. The degree of severity of the time that we're in might change. But this pattern in waiting for things to be peaceful politically or there to be no other global issues will not happen until Jesus reigns. I wonder this morning, where is your joy? Do you have the joy of the Lord? May it be this morning, and I don't mean to uh, rebuke so much as I do exhort. I want you to be encouraged that God has given us this message to re-engage us in joy, not to leave us hanging our heads when we leave here. Why? Because we have Jesus. We have forgiveness of our sins. We're liberated. We're set free. We have eternal life. We should have, indeed, the joy of the Lord. So Jesus talks about sanctification here. He says, sanctify them, the disciples, by your truth. Your word is truth. And again, we said there's a, a, likely a word play there. Why do we know that? Because Jesus, at the very end of the passage, says this. He says, I sanctify myself. I sanctify myself for them so that they may be sanctified by the truth. Now, the word sanctified here, as we finally get to the point of defining it, there's really two main uses of sanctification in the Bible. One is the process of becoming more pure, of being purified. Right? It's the, in, in Paul's letters, it's the idea of progressive sanctification, that we come to know Jesus and then we slowly become more like him. That's not the use here. The use here is to be set aside for a noble or kingdom purpose. Jesus doesn't need to become more like Jesus. He's already perfect. 
So what he's saying when he says, I sanctify myself for them, is that he's setting himself apart for the purpose of God on their behalf. And what is that purpose? To go to the cross for them, to bear their sin upon himself. In other words, he's praying a prayer of consecration. He consecrates himself for the sacrifice that he is about to offer, of which he is both simultaneously priest and victim. Jesus' prayer is a prayer of consecration. The, the sanctification of the disciples, of you and me, cannot happen unless Jesus goes to the cross, unless he is set aside for the purposes of God. I'm going to ask the band to come out at this time and prepare, help to prepare us for communion this morning. Is we're going to consider that offering that Jesus made of himself, giving himself, his body and his blood, that we could know God and live with joy. You see, it's only on the basis of what Jesus has done for them, on what Jesus has done for us, that his prayer can be answered. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is what we remember in the bread and the cup today. So if you're at home, we encourage you to get your, your bread ready, get your cup. The rest of us, we've got ours here. I want to read you Jesus' words from Matthew's gospel just a couple of hours before he prays this prayer. Matthew tells us this. He says, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. He blessed it and broke it. He gave it to the disciples and said, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for their forgiveness of sins. Jesus was glorified through the cross. He was sanctified, consecrated for the purposes of atonement of your sin, that you would truly know God and then go out of these doors, get up from your living room, wherever you are, and live with joy because you are forgiven. I want to give you a solid minute or so to just reflect on these things, to thank the Lord for his willingness to go to the cross for you. And then I'll come back. I'll give thanks for the bread. We'll take the bread. I'll give thanks for the cup. We'll take the cup. Take some time now.